Welcome to Fraud Busting. I'm Tracy Brown, the Fraud Busting Body Language Expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion dollar business deals. It's time to dive in so you can beat the fraudsters at their own game and build your bottom line. Cindy Olson is my guest today on Fraud Busting. She was the head of human resources at Enron. Yes, that Enron. Right when they collapsed, she was in the middle of all of it. It's been 20 years, but it's all still, I think, burned in our memory because it was so sudden and so shocking. We're going to talk culture, fraud, ethics, and how it led to that spectacular collapse. Now she's helping companies prevent the same thing from happening to them. She's a wealth of knowledge. You're going to enjoy this. Hi, it's Tracy. Just a quick thought. What would you do with $4? With that same money, a hacker can buy all of your info. I mean, social security number, credit card numbers, passwords, health insurance info, and yes, even your kids' information. Now, I've searched around on the dark web, and it's a good bet your info is out there for sale waiting to be used. If you're lucky, it'll just be a few charges to your credit card. But smart hackers are tapping into your credit to buy TVs, cars, houses, use your medical insurance, and even take over your banking and investment accounts, effectively kicking you out of your own accounts. You're the one that's going to be stuck with this big problem, have mystery bills due, and need to get your money back while repairing your good credit. Now, the folks at ID Shield know this and have the solution. I've teamed up with them on their ID theft insurance. It's comprehensive, it's inexpensive, and it will let you rest easy. They will replace any money you lost, give you access to their team of licensed private investigators to do whatever it takes to repair your credit score. Yep, they'll do the heavy lifting and spend all the hours on the phone and the time it takes to restore your online reputation to pre-breach levels. You, your money, and your reputation are worth more than $4. Treat yourself like it. Go to fraud-busting.com slash IDShield to learn more and get covered today. It's fraud-busting.com slash IDShield. We'll see you on the protected side when you get there. Cindy, thank you so much for coming on Fraud Busting. It's, it's great to be reconnected with you. How's everything going? Great, Tracy. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> oh, yeah, because uh, we were just talking. It's been, what, three or four years since we met at, in Memphis at the Project Managers Institute, and I, I gave a keynote, and, and you did a keynote. I was just fascinated by, by yours, and I know we didn't get enough chance to chat because I think you had to go catch a plane, and I was on later. And um, So I'm just thrilled that we have this opportunity to, to reconnect here. I agree. Totally agree with you. Yeah. So, so tell us, cause you were with Enron and Enron is just such a, it, it has a lasting impact in people's minds. I think because of everything that, that went on from the rise to the fall to the headlines and you were in the C-suite there. So why don't you let us know what was your job? What did you do? And then we'll get into um, maybe some juicy details about even like what you're still discovering now about this whole situation. Cause it was about 20 years ago. 
it was it was it was we're coming up on the 20 year anniversary of of the um actual bankruptcy filing and uh what's interesting it continues to be a topic of discussion i mean it's it's so so crazy to me that 20 years later we'll st we're still talking about enron uh and John Eschmiller, who was the original Wall Street Journal reporter that covered Enron back in the day, he's reconnected with me and they're getting ready to do a, a whole podcast around Enron 20 years later. And so, oh. so why did he reconnect with me? Let me tell you that kind of the, my background. So mm -hmm. I was actually living in Omaha, Nebraska, working for InterNorth in Omaha, Nebraska, when Enron and InterNorth uh, merged. And mm -hmm. it was actually InterNorth that bought Houston Pipeline to create Enron, but Ken Lay became the CEO of the entire company. And ultimately, uh, most people moved to uh, Houston because that mm -hmm. was the headquarters. I was, I always like to say I was there before Enron was Enron because I was there for about five years prior to Enron being formed from that merger. And then we, I moved to Houston early on and I was used, as you can imagine, a company that was, was formed uh, with a lot of mergers and acquisitions, okay? Because that's what we became. Enron was formed by bringing five pipeline systems together and mm -hmm. a, a producer, producing company and, and a, a, a processing company there was a lot of transformation to do. So I was actually used as a transformational leader in many of the backroom functions for 20 some years. And I learned, I would say from the best because McKinsey was our consultant of choice. And I went alongside McKinsey. They were the ones that usually had the strategy and the vision. And then I helped implement as a leader of the groups that were being transformed. And so at, at in 19 or in 2000 no it was 1997 huh. i took the lead of enron capital and trade and by that time skilling had come to enron as a mckinsey consultant and started kind of re reforming enron and um i was leading the back office of enron capital and trade so okay. we had the risk management books and all that and then Lay came to me uh, late that year and asked me if I would come to corporate. And so I was in the organization on the asset side of the business first. And then I was in Enron Capital and Trade, which was the new side of our business, which is more about intellectual capital. And then I, I ended up going to corporate to work directly for Lay, first running community relations. And then ultimately I ran the culture committee diversity. And then I asked for HR in 1999 and oh, they wow. gave it okay. to me and put me on the they put me on the on, on the uh, executive committee so i was one of the top 20 at that point mm -hmm. so why did i ask for hr it was clear to me that as we were we were creating enron and by the way by that time we had been named the most innovative company by fortune i think five years in a row mm -hmm. but we were it was clear that we were an intellectual capital company and we were not asset based anymore. In fact, Jeff's kind of long-term strategy was to sell the assets and we became a trading house similar to, I always say similar to GE because GE started out being a asset company and ultimately GE capital became one of the biggest uh, divisions of uh, general electric. So mm -hmm. we were a lot like that. And that's why we were the most innovative company for six years in a row. I would say that John Eschmiller, who uh, the Wall Street Journal contacted me because I'm kind of in a unique situation. 
I was there for 23 years. I was on the asset side. I was in the new business and then ultimately worked, worked at corporate and particularly human resources at right. the end of Enron's life. And so I am, I was really the, I'm the highest ranking Enron executive that had had all that experience, that very varied experience that stayed the longest, that was there the longest. So, um, except for Lay and of course, Ken Lay's, you know, not, not with us any longer. So right. anyway, so that's my background. And I, I pretty much know a lot about not only Enron's business, but what really was going on in the company and how we created our culture. Uh, and I love to talk about it because it was a company that was pretty incredible. Well, let's let's do talk about that because in this podcast, and especially with what we have going on right now, because uh, you know we're at, at the time we're recording this, we're starting to get back to work, and the culture is key to uh, preventing fraud. And the, the culture, I, I'm so curious about the culture at, at Enron because there ended up being quite a bit of fraud. Um, and, and I don't know if that was baked into the culture or a result of innovation or, I mean, and, and I've, I, I did, I watched the, the uh, I think I told you the smartest guys in the room and they they talked about some of the culture there as being like really aggressive and even they called it the rank and yank uh yeah. hr that system was, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard of that so why don't you speak to that a little bit and just like what what was your idea of what was going on what were you trying to create so i love it when people say that they've watched the smartest guys in the room because my response to that is that there were three things wrong with that that okay one mm -hmm. the people that were in that uh uh documentary um and that were speaking right uh, mm -hmm. were not at the top of enron because all of us at the top of enron uh, at that time, we're told by our attorneys to keep quiet. And mm -hmm. honestly, most people have kept quiet for all these years. I mean, mm -hmm. because it was such a traumatic experience. Yeah. So, so the people that were actually talking about Enron and, and were at Enron weren't at the top of the company. The second mm -hmm. thing that I, you know, I didn't really like about it is because it, it really does make you think that there was, was so much fraud in our accounting and in our um, trading. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't true. So when you really kind of peeled back the onion and mm -hmm. looked at, at the accounting uh, that we used, and everybody always goes to mark to market accounting, right. um, that was approved by the SEC. Okay. And so that was not fraud. That was elite. That was legal to use. Mm -hmm. uh, many companies still use that kind of accounting. Oh, really? Oh yeah, especially if they're trying to reflect their assets at a market value versus at a cost value. So that, and then the trading business, uh, that documentary makes it sound like we were just gambling, you know, gambling, right? And because I was uh, in charge of the back office of Enron Capital and Trade, part of that was balancing the risk books every night. Mm -hmm. And we, we made a lot of money in trading and we did it right. And we, there was not fraud in our, in the way we traded. Um, however, okay. So mm -hmm. I guess the other thing that I didn't like about the documentary is there was never anything. If you, if you really watched that documentary, there was never anything positive about Enron, right? And no, not a and, thing, not a thing. And so they don't talk about how we were the most innovative for six years in a row. The first one to ever do that. And the only other company that's done it's Apple. Mm -hmm. So there, there's something positive. The second is we did create a culture where everybody felt like they had a purpose every single day. 
And they came to work feeling like we were changing the world. We also had a culture where people could build and create. And that's why we were innovative because people felt like they could build and create. So I really think that it misses the mark in that it doesn't talk about some of the good things that Enron was all about. I go back today and I've connected with a lot of ex-Enron employees. And I don't know that I've found anyone that didn't say this. If I could go back and work for Enron, I'd do it in a heartbeat because I'll never find another company where the culture was so exciting. So you got to kind of understand that we were creating this culture that was very innovative. People were free to innovate and, and do things. Um, and and an ex a great example of that is when we built the trading system, I think it was in 98 or 99, mm -hmm. the traders and our CIO, decided that it was crazy for them to be on the phone with the counterparty, listen to them, tell them what the trade they wanted the trade to be. They entered the trade in our system. Mm -hmm. And um, so we, we built the, the, the trading platform that became the, the used by the whole industry, which was everybody entered their own trade. So there weren't traders talking on the phone with the counterparties, the counterparty parties entered their own trades. Mm -hmm. So it was more, um, it was more open. It was more transparent at that point. And like I said, it became the trading, uh, trading platform for the industry in a lot of different commodities. Well, so, yeah, I, I, I noticed that on, and, and they did allude to that on the, um, on the documentary is that you all really were at the forefront of what, uh, might even be considered things like E-Trade now. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. Tracy, that is exactly it. That's a great, that's a great example. That was mm -hmm. exactly what it was. But I, but I, I, I got to say that the documentary got right uh, in spades. The fact that we had become so successful mm -hmm. that we were becoming arrogant, and we became very arrogant. Arrogant, and I believe that that leads you down a path where you believe that no matter what, you can't fail. Mm -hmm. And I think that our innovation bled into the in, in areas that probably should not have been innovative, mm -hmm. uh, like accounting, and yeah. I'm not saying, you know, like accounting and some of the things I know Jeff Skilling used to say, we're really loose because we want people to innovate, but we're really tight when it comes to controls. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that we weren't tight as he thought we were mm -hmm. in terms of the controls that could have identified some of the issues. I would love to share with the audience a story that, or it's not a story, it's an actual, uh, actually what happened. I, um, I've reconnected with Andy Fastow. Yeah. Andy was our CFO. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he told me a story that I think really shows how we had gotten where we got. Right. Okay. And, um, and I think it will, it, it's going to be a lesson that your reader, that your audience takes out of this, this, that's going to, it's, it's going to make them step back and think, Oh my gosh. So Andy had been named the most innovative CIO by CIO magazine. Mm -hmm. He went into the boardroom in early 2001 with a schedule where he was going to show the board 
how much he'd accomplished with respect to our off balance sheet partnerships and mm -hmm. what those off balance sheet partnerships had done to our credit rating. And he had a schedule of all those off balance sheet partnerships. And if we had not created those, and there were quite a few of them, Mm -hmm. If we had, and they were legal, by the way, off balance sheet partnerships were legal. But when you take an aggregate number of off balance sheet partnerships and you see how much, you know, you've changed the balance sheet, that's when it starts to become questionable. Right. So we had taken into the board a spreadsheet that showed that if we had not created the off balance sheet partnerships, our credit rating would have been a B minus minus instead oh. of an A, a uh -huh. credit rating. Wow. So. So I, I usually ask, I, when I speak now, I tell that story and I ask the audience, so what would your board have said if you were the CFO and you showed them that you really had created a, a, a mechanism by which the, the credit rating was higher and your cost of money was lower, right? So it was, a, it was valuable to the company to have that kind of credit rating. What would your board have said? And in the case of Andy, the board said, Wow, that's great, Andy. Keep keep it up, mm -hmm. right? Oh. So here's the issue. Okay. It was legal, right? Mm -hmm. Everything that he showed them was legal. But when you really step back and look at it, was it ethical? And I think yep. that that's the thing that every single company needs to ask themselves because we were very clever, very innovative at figuring ways to do things that were legal. But not. But really, when you step back and looked at it, it was it, it wasn't ethical. Now that and, that that brings up a good point. And so, um, keep going. And then I want to bring up something uh, about that. So, so when so when we talk about fraud, and and people always say to me, lots of fraud. When did you go down the slip? Knew you were going down the slippery slope. And it's it's interesting because. To a to an executive committee member, they'll say, mm -hmm. "We didn't think we were creating fraud because everything we were doing was legal." Except mm -hmm. Andy, Andy did steal money. I mean, he did manage the off balance sheet partnerships and paid himself money, which he wasn't supposed to do. So that was illegal. Mm -hmm. But all of the the structures that we set up um, were legal. But then when we when you really look at it. Uh, they were clever instruments that helped us look different than we really were. Mm -hmm. Now, on that legal versus ethical topic, uh, what about some of these California power plant shutdowns and things like that? Um, oh, and I remember those. I remember those. Here's the issue. Enron owned the market. We right. had a monopoly. Uh-huh. We could, we could manipulate the market and, and, and honestly in the, in the documentary, there's, I can't remember it. It's a Senator, a, a California Senator, someone, and she's going and they, they, uh, they manipulate the market and they did it and they did it and they did it and they, and we did do it and we made lots of money doing yeah. it. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, was that illegal? No, it wasn't illegal. Was it ethical? That wasn't ethical. Right. So, so that's why you've really got to put that ethical filter on things and mm -hmm. not just because so many companies go to the attorneys and we did it too. When Ken Lay got the, um, when Sharon Watkins came to me with their letter and talked mm -hmm. about how all the stuff we were doing, you know, wasn't really right. 
he had he had Vincent and Elkins and Arthur Anderson look at everything and they came back and said it was all fine mm -hmm. from an, from an accounting and a legal standpoint, it was fine. But when you really looked at what we did mm -hmm. in the case of accounting, um, it way, it maybe wasn't as it wasn't ethical. Right. So, so were, were you so far in the middle of it that you couldn't see that or did, like, did it bug you or the, concern anybody at the time? What no. was the attitude? So the attitude really was just like I said, so if you've got a board, mm -hmm. a board that was well paid, and I think I, I think the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times said that, said this about our board. We didn't have a junior varsity board. We had a stellar board mm -hmm. and they were paid lots of money. So if a board of the company is giving accolades to Andy for doing what we, we did with the off balance sheet partnerships and mm -hmm. saying we want more. How do you, I mean, how do you think we saw, we saw that we were doing the things that the company should be doing. Right. right. And so we were not, none of us, in fact, gosh, I remember in late November, I was thinking to myself, there's no way we're going to file for bankruptcy. And it was, you know, two weeks later that we did. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would guess that most executives are going to say that we didn't really see any of this mm -hmm. as illegal or fraudulent or any of that uh, until we, we file for bankruptcy. And even then, mm -hmm. like I was, I was talking to the New York times or the uh, wall street journal reporter, John mm -hmm. uh, in an email the other day. And he said, um, you know, one of the things you point out is that no one in the financial crisis was prosecuted, indicted. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was like, it made Enron look like child's play. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I said, the problem we had was we were early. If we imploded and it was a, it was not, it was the implosion or bankruptcy was a liquidity issue, just like it was in this uh, 08 financial crisis when mm -hmm. AIG and Goldman sold the credit default swaps that they couldn't then pay out because they didn't have the money to do it. Mm -hmm. We were, we were a liquidity crisis because many of our financial uh, contracts were based on Enron's stock price. And so as, our stock price fell, the banks needed more collateral to be able to hold our notes. And so it became a liquidity crisis. And I've, I've shared with John, a couple of the people that have were actually at Enron for 10 years. It took 10 years to unravel the contracts and oh. they collected billions of dollars. And uh -huh. we weren't a real true bankruptcy because we had more assets than we had, you know, liabilities, but when we brought in the, the bankruptcy attorneys, they were making a million dollars a week. Yeah, that's, so, yeah, I heard that. <laughs> so, so it was like we, if we could have, if we could, and Ken Lay, so so Ken Lay was my mentor, and mm -hmm. I, and we had dinner uh, right before he died out in Colorado, and one of the things that he told my husband and I is that he wished he'd never filed for bankruptcy. Because he thinks that if he'd just gone to the banks, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase at the time was the mm -hmm. our big bank, and talked about how we could get out of that without, you know, filing for bankruptcy. He thinks that maybe we could have come out of it. A lot of people say that 9/11 happened right in September of that of that year, and the yeah. financial markets were froze. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say that that because of 9/11, that might not have happened. So the pro the problem I think we had was there was just all these things that happened, and we we were not as in the financial crisis. 
we were not going to bring the whole economic uh, uh, structure down across around the world. If you really talk to some of the people that were at the Fed during the, the 08 and 09 crisis, they'll mm -hmm. tell you that they had a lot of conversations about whether to go after executives in those firms or not. Mm -hmm. And they chose not to because they didn't, they felt like they could take the whole financial market down. Oh yeah. So, that's the thing. Trust is, is huge in our, yes, like yes. we have to trust the banks or nothing works. That's right. That's and, right. And as soon as the bankers start going to jail, we have a big problem, like a bigger problem than we think we'd have. Like if, if all of them go to jail. Right. No, that's right. So, you know, it's been interesting because I have continued to look, look at everything and, and evaluate. And of course, when, when you've got people like John Eschmiller, you know, coming and saying, Cindy, can you help me find so-and-so? And here's what I think. And I really want to, you know, do this podcast with, with the real story, mm -hmm. right? It's hard for me to let go. And, and then you look back and you go, 20 years has passed, right? But I really think the, the big lesson out of Enron is this. And I, and I would love to be able to build a culture and a company like we had before, but without the bad stuff without the arrogance without the you know the really it was it was there was too much of we we felt like we could do anything yeah. and nobody would stop us right mm -hmm. and and so if i if i could i would love to build a company where we really did create and innovate and everybody loved their job and came to work every day totally committed and and engaged with their job mm -hmm. and not had the bad stuff but you know, I just don't know how, to, I don't know that we, I don't know that that'll ever happen because there's not a lot of companies out there where when I describe Enron, like for instance, working from home, Tracy, mm -hmm. it's been interesting to listen to people talk about, oh my gosh, we can let our employees work from home. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm thinking, yeah, we gave everybody a computer at home in 1999, 25,000 employees got a computer at home uh -huh. in 1999 so they could work from home. Cause we'd figured out back then that people could be more productive if they had that, that infrastructure at home. And if they couldn't come into the office, which would save us money from an office space standpoint, oh, and yeah. utility standpoint. So I'm looking at that going, oh my gosh, you guys, we were doing that way back. And I can't believe you just think that all of a sudden this is something that is innovative. I mean, it, 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 <laughs> it, 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 it. <laughs> well, the, the, the cat's out of the bag now. <laughs> yes. And I think, I don't know, you've probably seen statistics, but I know I've seen some statistics that say that, you know, before this happened, it was 9% that worked from home that could could and now it'll kind of probably come back to about 30 percent that'll work from home so, yeah I, I, i'm curious to see because i was and i was just talking to my husband about it yesterday um because he he works but uh in um lewisville which is between boulder and denver yeah we're in, we're in boulder and the uh traffic to get to boulder uh, from Denver in the mornings is nasty. It is horrible. And I'm surprised all those people don't go postal um, I know. to do that every day. <laughs> and, and I was out uh, yesterday or the day before, no traffic at all. And that's because in Boulder, it's mostly white collar. And I, you know what, I would be surprised if we see that return to even anywhere close to the old, old levels, because yeah. like, who's here? Google, we have a big Google Play. I mean, yep. like, these people can work from home and, and even my husband, he's like, I'm so much more productive 
at home and he's so much less stressed too because there's yep. there's that factor and, and it is so profound his lack of, of stress because he's a rocket scientist and uh, he builds satellites and all sorts of things. He, he's the re one of the reasons why we can watch little cat videos on Facebook. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I mean, among other things, he does some defense, but um, his stress level is so low. Our relationship is so much better. It's never been this good because he doesn't come home stressed and looking for a fight or looking for an argument. But get this, he's got his hearing back. He couldn't hear. And wow, he's got his sense of smell and taste back, uh, and all his stress that he just carried around for so long, it cut. It was cutting off his senses, and we did. I didn't know it. He didn't know it. But now it's back, and he's walking through the. <laughs> and now he's walking through the house. He can hear me from the other room, which is amazing. And he'll um, he'll smell something in the house. He's like, "What is that?" And I'm like, "Babe." That's dinner. <laughs> like we're, we're <laughs> and he I had no it. idea before. So it's been that part has been amazing for us, and I hope he doesn't really have to go back to at least full time in the office. So yeah, I would agree with you. I hope companies are taking note because it, you know you don't really have. I always used to call it FaceTime. You don't need FaceTime if you can work from home. And then the other thing is, you know, a lot of companies I think are going to find that if they allow this, they're going to find more women that stick around because even when they have children, if they're allowed to be more flexible with flexible mm -hmm. schedules and work from home, oh, yeah. they'll be able to keep those women. Right. And what? so, mm -hmm. you know, I think there's a lot of values or value that's, that's that's surely these companies have seen. This might be a good a good thing for you to get some people on and talk about be, because it, it does give, there's so much flexibility. You can find talent anywhere. I think the only big issue, which is kind of up your alley, is the fact that now that you're working from home, you've got to really make sure that you've got good cyber protection. Yep. Uh, because that, yeah, so there's, there's those controls that, need to be looked at. And then of course the culture, you've got to make sure that, you know, you're keeping people engaged with each other. But with all the stuff that we've got like teams and zoom and all that, that, I mean, it, there's really opportunities to do that. Well, there is. And so considering how you, I mean, you have a lot to say about culture. What, um, what would you have done differently back then uh, to, like, like, would you have done anything differently? I mean, considering yeah. how everything turned out, like what, what's your biggest take home from this whole thing? I think the biggest take home is, um, is stay grounded and humble. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and it's interesting because Ken Lay was that, mm -hmm. uh, Jeff became the face of the company. And, I, you know, I quickly have to say that we would not have been the most innovative company without Jeff Skilling, but mm -hmm. on the same token, he was one of the reasons why I think we, we all felt it was okay to be arrogant. And I think a culture that we, like we had, um, can be good without the arrogance. And, um, and the other thing too, I would, you know, the rank and rank and yank thing that you talked mm -hmm. about. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it was at the time I thought it was a great way to really determine who was, who was contributing to the company. Uh -huh. But I think that it created a lot of animosity and tension because everybody was ranked every and the supervisors had to fight for their people on where they ended up. And there was a lot of, of, of just turmoil 
that was mm -hmm. around that. And I think that there's a better way to do that. Most companies now are not even rating people, right? They're, they're going to uh, feedback, but not really a ranking. The, the, I mean, I think there's, there's definitely some things that, that those are the two that come to mind that I would change. I don't, I wouldn't change anything that, that, uh, that really allowed us, not allowed, but really incentivized people to be innovative. Mm -hmm. Cause I think that was the part that everybody loved. They love to be able to create. They love to be listened to. They love to be able to uh, be valued for what they contributed. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, so, now. Oh, go ahead. No, I just, so, you know, I, it's, it's a balancing act. How do you get that? And then on the other hand, not have the arrogance and the turmoil and the competition that was that was created with our performance management system. Right, right. So how how would you incentivize innovation these days? Well, I still think that you you've got to um, allow people to uh, come up with ideas because innovation is one of two things, right? It's the it's the result of inspiration or it's the result of uh, desperation, right? Mm -hmm. So. So in this COVID world, there's a lot of innovation that's taken place just out of desperation, mm -hmm. but you've got to let people, uh, you've got to let people come up with ideas that are inspiring or that solve issues. And, and so I think that's really important. It depends on, on the leadership. You've got mm -hmm. to have leaders that encourage that. And don't shut people down and say, oh, that'll never work. You know, encourage them to go out and, and talk to other people in the company about your idea. How would you make that work? What would be the plan? You know, let them, let them see if they can come up with some of that. Because I think that the innovation doesn't happen at the very top of the organization. Innovation happens in the middle or the bottom of the organization where everything's getting done. Mm -hmm. And so to have that innovative culture, I think you've almost got to have uh, leaders that allow that those ideas to bubble up. Um, and then, you know, not shut them down. Cause so many times leaders will say, well, you know, that, that idea, that idea is not right. Or is not, is not smart or it's stupid or whatever. You can't mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. You've got to look at every single idea and say, great, well go take the lead on that. See if you can make it work. Now, would you go so far as to have a budget for, I don't know, innovation failures or something along those lines? Cause not, not everything is going to work. No, I know. Okay. So that's very interesting. I've been asked that question before. Um, and even boards of directors have, have, have said, how much innovation can we tolerate? And they're really asking how much failure can we mm -hmm. tolerate? Yeah, right? yeah. And I don't remember us ever talking about having any budget for failure. I mean, I think what our whole deal was fail fast and then, you know, figure out if it's not going to work, it's not going to work and move on. Mm -hmm. Um, and it doesn't have to be, we tried having this innovation center and we called it an accelerator and it was a formalized process. It doesn't work. You know, you can't, I don't, I don't believe in, um, get people to think innovatively and have them come together and, and put, put the ideas on the board and figure out which one. I think the really innovative ideas are just born in the organization. And then someone takes the initiative to figure out how it's, how it's done and then it, it happens. And how would I, how would I reward that? I'd reward the people that actually go make it happen, not the ideas, because everybody can have an idea, but people that go, figure out how to go make it happen. We reward those people 
a lot. I mean, though there's a pool of money to reward those people, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, that you encourage them, encourage people to, to do that kind of thing. And I think that's, you know, that's where the dollars need to be, not in how much money can we afford to lose, but how much money do we give to people that really truly come up with an idea and operationalize it? Exactly. Oh, I love that. So, um, any, cause I want to talk about what you're doing now. Uh, cause I mean, you're just such a wealth of knowledge here. Um, any last thoughts on Enron? Um, yeah, I think the, the thoughts that, that I want to just reinforce is this. Um, I was almost embarrassed that I didn't really think about the whole uh, ethical versus legal because we kept, all of us kept saying, well, everything we're doing is legal. We asked the SEC, we did this, we ran everything by Arthur Anderson, we ran everything by Vincent and Elkins. And I think a lot of companies do that today. Mm -hmm. I mean, they say, okay, it's all, it's been blessed by our accountants or our legal, outside legal counsel or whatever. But I think that you've got to have this moral compass that basically says, is it really truly ethical? Mm -hmm. And that's hard to have because if you're a public company, you're so driven by the earnings. Right. And, and, but I think that that is where the rubber meets the road, that you, you have to have that additional, uh, it's a layer of gut check that says, yeah, this might be legal, but in the aggregate, do we really want to have 15 or 20 off balance sheet partnerships? I mean, you know, so, so you ask, you've got to have someone that's there asking the questions and it's got to be the leader. I think that's the biggest, biggest, biggest learning that I would say that I've had. And believe me, I have looked at this. I've got a white paper and I don't know if you, I ever sent you the white paper. No. I, sent, I sent it to a guy. He, he reached out to me from Florida. He's a, he uh, buys companies. He says, I want to do it right. Uh, can you help me? And I said, well, let me send you my white paper. I would be more than happy to send my white paper to you and you could distribute it. But oh, it's, really, it's really looking at everything that we did and the issues that we had in what I would call the, the, the drivers of culture. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a roadmap on how to create an innovative culture and what are the things that Enron did right and what are the things that Enron did wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'd be more than happy to share that with your audience. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's do that. And we'll put the link in the show notes. So anybody looking for that can have easy access. So, right. uh, so let's talk about what are you doing now? I'm so curious. So it's, I think it's been really driven by my, my passion to make sure that other companies don't go down the same path that we did. And really identifying that HR and IT right now today, mm -hmm. your HR and IT departments, number one, they have to collaborate because the employee experience that you have to have when you're working from home or anywhere, right, is mm -hmm. dependent upon the humanity and then the technology, right, coming right. together. So what I've done is, I, I, in partnership with ADP and everybody kind of goes ADP, but they are the most innovative uh, company out there as far as an HCM right now. Mm -hmm. um, well, define, they, define HCM just in case. Okay. Yeah. So a human capital management system, everybody's mm -hmm. got a, an Oracle PeopleSoft uh, uh, system that does their payroll and talent management <laughs> and all that. So an HCM is a bundle of integrated H HR processes, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you've either got an SAP an Oracle or Workday or UltiPro, or, or now ADP has got the next gen HCM. Okay. But in, con in, in concert with them, because they've helped me build this, we've built uh, a network in 11 cities of thought leadership groups that come together quarterly. We've got about 750 CHROs and CIOs in 11 cities that come together quarterly and get 
really good thought leadership. So what I'm doing is trying to create leaders that know things that are out there in the future using my innovation from Enron and then also understanding that the employee experience has to be driven by the collaboration between HR and IT. Mm-hmm. And so I'm bringing these groups together and then uh, what we're doing is we're also allowing them to um, get leadership training and I'm working with Deloitte on how to help those two functions and those two executives become board members. They all want to be on a paid board. Mm -hmm. So Deloitte's helping me with board readiness. I'm working with, I'm working with a cybersecurity expert on how to really help companies understand, you know, what things have to be in place and culture is a big part of cybersecurity. And so I'm just trying to figure, I'm using my Enron experience from an innovation standpoint and from an HR standpoint and trying to help C-suite leaders be better and, and drive better organizations. Oh, I love that. Okay. So how can people get in touch with you and find out maybe how to join or how to get a chapter in their city? So um, we're, we're just in the process of getting our website up. It's, it's going to be executive strategic alliance.com. That should be up in about a month. And if they want to email me personally, they can, they can send me an email at Cindy at executive strategic alliance.com. And I'll be more than happy to help. Like the guy that, that uh, contacted me, he found me through LinkedIn and I'm going to help him with some of his uh, private equity uh, acquisitions and see if I can help him with culture. So I'm more than happy to help anybody that needs it. And then if you want to get involved in the Executive Strategic Alliance, just let me know. Oh, oh, I love that. Thank you so much for coming on Fraud Busting today. You're just a gem. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.